0: Take our Bibles and journey to the book of Job this morning, Job chapter one. It's wonderful to continue to see uh, everyone week by week uh, regather. Encouraging. Uh, whether you're present or whether you're, you're actually watching on live stream like we did last week, uh, when you see from back cameras more and more of the back of more heads. <laughs> you can actually tell even on live stream the, the volume of the singing and the spirit of the singing is growing greater and greater uh, each week. That's a tremendous encouragement. and um, So I pray that God gives us all wisdom and how to do something we've never had to do before. And that's regather after 24 months of situation hopefully we'll never have to face again but uh, praise God that we are striving well to get back together and and for this year a good portion of this year we'd like to study uh, this book I don't know I've gone back into previous pastors we had six pastors of Grace Church of Mentor from 1948 1991 went back and searched the record as far as we possibly could to see if the book of Job was ever preached on and what I found out was true about a lot of churches for some reason and I really don't know why I don't know why Job's not been approached on Sunday mornings in a lot of churches. Now, as we go through it, I'm assuming because it's God's word, we're going to try to preach it, and I'm assuming it's appropriate for Sunday mornings. But then there's something in my humanity in the back of my heart that's kind of like, are you going to do something that a lot of other wiser guys than you didn't choose to do and crash and burn in the meantime? I hope not. But pray for me, for us. As we journey through uh, this book, um, this is a book of wisdom that we'll discuss. When you preach wisdom, you don't preach wisdom like you do um, New Testament letters, what we would call epistolary literature. It's different. It's different. We'll do our best to be honest with the theme of this book. What I'd like to do, uh, just to begin this morning, is just look at the first few verses of chapter 1. I want to highlight something that I think um, centrally important to the understanding of this whole book. The main character of this book is obviously going to be God. The whole theme of the book of Job that we'll crescendo to this morning uh, is going to center on knowing and trusting the sovereignty of God, regardless of our circumstances. So God is the main divine character, but the central human character is obviously Job. I think we need to understand something about Job, because we're going to understand a lot about God this morning and the rest of our time in this book. That's important, because this book can be approached and its theme be misdiagnosed. I have a pastor friend who was diagnosed with an illness and his really good doctor had prescribed for him a way out of that illness. And any good doctor that prescribes a way out of an illness for a patient, if it's a serious situation and they're humble, they're going to say, you know what, I think you should probably maybe get another opinion before we dive into this course of cure. So he did. He went to another doctor, and the doctor reviewed his case, all the files, scopes, scans from the previous physician, and reviewed the process of cure given by his personal doctor. And that doctor said, well... If you pursue this particular course of cure, he said, I do think you'll die. Um, He's a good guy, he's a good doctor, but this is what I see in this situation, and I think you've been not only given a wrong cure, you've also been misdiagnosed. And this could be a real problem. Uh, Thankfully, that doctor found that, and thankfully, that pastor's life was able to be spared. And he was properly diagnosed and continues to live on a healthy individual. I think one of the worst things that we can do when we approach Scripture is to misdiagnose its purpose for being written. If we don't understand its central theme of its author, we don't understand enough about its recipients. And if you misdiagnose its theme, you can misapply its application and then you have quite a train wreck on your hands. Along with the potential of misdiagnosing the theme of the book of Job as it relates to understanding the God of Job, if you misunderstand God's theme for this book, the divine purpose for the book, the heavenly purpose for the book, then you are also going to misunderstand or misdiagnose Job's person. You're gonna misunderstand him because two-thirds of the book are spent by Job being addressed by his friends And they are completely theologically way off base. But they talk a lot about God. They talk a lot about God. We're going to talk about how many times they talk about God. So while Job's suffering is obviously in this book, it is, takes up very little space in this book. Once you get past chapter two, it's very rarely, if ever, dealt with again. So right past what we would call the prologue to this book, the rest of the book is primarily about God And what certain people think about God is it relates to Job's situation. And if they're going to miss out on understanding God, then they're going to miss out on Job and understanding him. So the pain that Job was already enduring is only intensified. Because you have a godly guy who's being told by really good friends that things aren't right for all the wrong reasons. Okay. So what do we know about Job? Job chapter one. And by the way, we're going to have a couple weeks of introduction. It's going to take at least two weeks and we have some two glorious testimonies in our baptisms to get to this morning too and still get out on time. So if you'll indulge me here just for a few minutes, we'll begin part A of our introduction to the book of Job and God willing, i finish that next Sunday morning. There was a man in the land of Uz, verse 1. Try to find out where Uz is, and you'll have a hard time. Or where Uz was, you'll have a hard time. Most people think it was somewhere just to the southeast of Jerusalem. Lots of guesses. Research it out on your own. Some of you already have. If you're pretty confident you know where Uz was, let me know. And his name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, and fearing God. And turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were seven, thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east, that's some superlative language. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of each one on his day, and they would, send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them the great relationships among his children and typically that is testimony of the quality of relationship that a parent would have with the Lord and a parent would have with his wife how do his children relate with each other and how do those children relate with them it's kind of a 50,000 foot view of one practical way that we know that Job feared the Lord Verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. And Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So this is back in a time. We'll talk about that time in just a little bit, probably patriarchal time, maybe a little pre-patriarchal where there were family priests there were uh, the lead of the family that would offer sacrifices even on the behalf of their children's sin now why do we read these first few verses now let's go all the way to the end of the book chapter 42 okay chapter 42 now let's read about what God says about Job to his friends from God's own mouth We're going to learn about God. The central theme is going to be about God. He's the main divine character, but Job is the main human character. Verse 7. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. And my servant Job has... Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up burnt offering for yourself. And may my servant Job and my servant Job will pray for you, and will accept him. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. God's merciful, isn't he? Because you have not spoken of me what is right, and my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord, what? He had always accepted Job as a man that feared him. That position in him had never changed. It's good to look at the beginning. It's good to look at the book ends of the book. To understand God's heart towards his righteous servant, Job. Now, if you want to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible in these first five verses of chapter 1, I would do this. I would write down chapters 29 and chapter 31. Would you do that? Chapter 29 and chapter 31. In chapter 29, Job recounts before his friends a very lengthy discussion of proof that he feared God. This is what my life was like before the affliction came and my life was like this because I feared God. When understanding the main human character here. We've got to understand what does it mean to fear God? In the book, Job also says what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is just the hands and feet on how to do the word of God, the will of God in your life. And chapter 29 does that. And if you jump over in your reading of this book to chapter 31 sometime this week, you'll find no less than 11 different virtues that people who fear God practice in their life. In the margin of my Bible, I believe I have 11, and I could probably find a 12th, but I just kind of took one of them and divided it into two parts. So you may find 12 different virtues that are practiced by someone who walks in wisdom because they fear God. It was good for Job to do that because Job knew he was being misdiagnosed. And what brought greater grief to Job is that he knew that God was being misunderstood by his friend as he sought to know more about God and the why of his tumult, the why of his difficulty. Anyways, uh, we'll continue on. Right? we we'll get through as much as we can here this morning. I think you'll find throughout this whole book that Job was a man that maintained a lifestyle of fearing God. So let's remember these things about Job and you'll learn a lot about his God our God and just maybe as we look around us we can assume the room is full of faithful Job's this morning can we do that we've talked a lot about that in the last two years as the world tries to distract us to be identified with certain labels right we say assume faith assume growth continue to grow in Christ-likeness together through having godly conversations. Let's just assume that the room is full of a bunch of people who fear God. Can we do that? Job's friends didn't assume that with him. And it was killing him. Let's not be Job's friends that we'll discuss. Let's assume everyone in the room is in Christ and therefore fearing God and therefore growing. Because within this room are all varying degrees of suffering and difficulty. And there's not one person in this room, man, woman, or child, that is not enduring something really hard in their life right now. The world is becoming aware of this more and more often. That's why we hear a lot more today about mental health in homes and schools and cities and areas and regions. Don't be ashamed to just roll down your window and tell us what's really going on in your life because your mental health depends on it. Everyone in this room is enduring something very heavy. You say, not my kid, my kid's going home he's going to have a burger he's going to go out and go sledding they're going to laugh all day long listen any parent that ever assumes their kids not enduring something heavy is a little unwise because we're in the human condition we're bearing something heavy it's called a brokenness caused by sin right and that brokenness never sleeps nor slumbers everyone is But in Christ, by faith, we can assume that we're all fearing God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And we're all enduring through these things, therefore craving a relationship with our God and with others who fear him to help endure through the difficulty. Satan's number one tactic in discouraging God's people is to isolate them if he can isolate you from another believer or from the flock of God, that's tactic number one every time on his playbook. Discourage, isolate, devastate. Discourage, isolate, devastate. Job was discouraged. His friends weren't doing anything but isolating him more. And he was feeling more and more devastation. But in Christ, as we all endure trials, we are people of faith. We're Jobs. We're Jobs. And we encourage each other through it. Now, a little bit about the book. No one that I know of that's ever deeply hurt ever raced to Shakespeare and his sonnets to comfort their souls. A friend of mine said, I've never known anyone torn asunder by life's difficulties to dive into Homer's Iliad or Plato's Republic to find solace for their hearts. If you're deeply afflicted, and at a time in your life when it feels you that no one else could possibly be enduring the trouble that you are, even though you know there are others, and you pour yourself in to a book of the Bible like Job. I would say that for me, uh, that's been the case. For me, Job or the Psalms, right? There's a reason why For many of us, those two books of the Bible probably have more tattered and worn pages than others. Because that's where we go when we hurt. And we hurt a lot. The book of Job has a divine way of remaining relevant to us. Even today, as we persevere through the various tragedies of life, Leighton Talbert quotes the 19th century English essayist Thomas Thomas Carlyle, who said this There is nothing written, I think, in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit than the book of Job when it comes to facing life's troubles. He also quotes an author most of you are familiar with, Tennyson, who called Job the greatest poem of ancient or modern times its enduring literary literary influence is apparent in masterpieces such as Dante's Divine Comedy, Milton's Paradise Lost, and Goethe's Faust, and other works, artistic and musical, that have been inspired by these. Just about anyone that you talk to, even if they don't know the Lord, can tell you in part what happened to, and they'll probably even call him Job instead of Job. Right? Right? in a grocery store not long ago and someone was having a hard day and they were behind me and they were talking about how hard and tough their life was and my life's just like the, that guy Job. <laughs> you know? A lot of people know about this guy Job. They identify with the reality that in life is difficulty. What do we learn from this guy? And they don't understand that really the book is not just learning about Job, it's Job wanting us to learn about his God. Wolverd, in his understanding of the book of Job, writes this, the knowledge of Job and his friends about God and his ways is proof that prior to written scripture, God had revealed himself in definite form. The book of Job furnishes sufficient material in itself for a well-rounded systematic theology, biblical theology, and indicates God had not left himself without adequate testimony even in Job's time. No, Job is not a mere textbook of doctrine. He goes on to say the style and form intertwine the theological with the dramatic and the literary. Job is more like a novel tracing growth and transformation of a character in conflict. It is an organic whole and unfolding drama that uncovers new facets of of the central supernatural character God and reveals the spiritual metamorphosis of the central human character Job. For us, the book is primarily composed of poetry and prose. One author said that Job is like the log cabin of the Bible. He said it has a prologue, a dialogue, a monologue, and an epilogue. The prologue and the, di- and the epilogue are really the poetry. The prologue and the epilogue are the poetry, and the dialogue and monologue, which is two thirds of the book, is the prose much like Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Job. There have been many educated guesses throughout the centuries, including other Old Testament Bible characters, even unto King Hezekiah. But anyone that's intellectually honest with the history of this book, it's like Hebrews. We can make some educated guesses, but we're not told. As to the timing of this writing, well, that's been a matter of debate as well. Most authors place it around 2000 BC or before Jesus, before Christ in a pre-Mosaic patriarchal period. There are many evidences that the author of the book may not have been Jewish. We know that Job wasn't. This author could have been from Northern Arabia or possibly even written in Aramaic first. But since it's considered wisdom literature in the Bible, some have placed its writing more around the time of the wisdom books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, so more of a Solomonic time period. One evidence of this is the principal designation for God throughout the major portion of the book, the dialogue, and that's the patriarchal title, Shaddai, for God. And often Eloah, or Elohim, But the predominant appearance of the name Yahweh, Jehovah, in the first two chapters, 18 times, and the concluding chapters, nine times, can also suggest it was written during a Solomonic period. But let's not forget this. Some of you say, I thought this was about the book of Job. It is, it's called background. (laughs) And I, 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 I hope it's not coming across too much just like a class. But I think there's some things we need to know as we grasp the the purpose and theme for this book and head that direction. Let's not forget that much of what Moses wrote in the first five books of the Old Testament that we call the Pentateuch happened much before his time. For instance, Genesis chapters 37 to 50 occurred some 500 years before Moses penned it. So it is possible for a later author to write about something much earlier than their existence and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit record it accurately and have it be universally accepted by bodies of believers across the world. So there could be later authorship, could be early authorship. Nonetheless, the events occurring in the book of Job are authentic, Spiritually, historically verified. And we continue to study it. Most likely, Job would have been a citizen of Northern Arabia. I find it interesting in the Old Testament, and this is kind of like a devotional thought, (laughs) that God mercifully demonstrated himself, as we've already mentioned, to people outside the Jewish community. I think of Pharaoh in Genesis 12, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, and then there's two Abimelechs, two different Abimelechs in the book of Genesis in chapter 20 and verse 26. All of these people outside the Mosaic community still mercifully had the way of faith, the way of salvation made apparent to them. And while Old Testament Israel is not the New Testament local church, God mercifully still let the fame of his name grow among peoples. And his arm has never been too short that it cannot save. And so when we read about Job and his fearing God, we understand that this is a man who was not of Jewish descent. Go over with me to chapter 2 and verse 11. Before we criti- overly criticize Job's friends too much, let's read about these folks that were not of Jewish descent as well. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz, Bildad, And Zophar, and their places, and they made it, they made an appointment together, so this was a mutual agreement, to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at the distance and did not even recognize Job, they raised their voices and they wept. And each of them tore his robe. And they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Acts of really personal worship. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that this pain was very great. These are good guys. These are God-loving people. These are God-fearing people. They'll testify to that fact in their responses to Job. And all of these God-fearing men, and there'll be another to be added later that's not mentioned here, Elihu, were of non-Jewish descent. I think that's just kind of a neat thing that God, when we read the Old Testament, you think, wow, he's doing everything through the Jewish nation, the Israelites. God was merciful to everybody. (laughs) And that's a blessing to know that these men not only understood faith and knew saving faith, but they were able to grow in that faith in very tangible, real ways in their daily living long before they even had a Bible to carry around with them. Uh, these These were good people. Well, as we wrap up this part of our introduction this morning so we can move on to our baptism part of our service this morning, what's also interesting is many of the socio-religious aspects of Job have Job living around the time and these individuals around that patriarchal time period as well. What does the book teach us about the time in which Job lived? Chapter 1 and verse 3 his wealth was measured by livestock. As a matter of fact, in all of Northern Arabia, he was called, he was number one in the Northern Arabia Forbes magazine of wealth. That's what the text says. Doesn't it say he was the biggest, the best, the richest? And he was. Well, they measured wealth by livestock in this time period. We already mentioned chapter 1 and verse 5, the family priest structure was also familiar with this time. You'll read this week in your own Bible reading, if you're going to study through this, that there were raids in chapter 1 upon Job and his family and things by the Sabians and the Chaldeans. And those raids of those two nomadic peoples also happened often in this 2000 BC-ish time period. The Hebrew term for the piece of silver in chapter 42 and verse 11 is a unit of value used during the same time period found only in the Bible in two other spots in Genesis thirty-three nineteen 19 and Job 24, 32. Joshua, excuse me, 24, 32. If you go all the way to the end of the book in Job 42, 16, you'll find his age mentioned there. And Job's lifespan fits the time period of other patriarchal lifespans of his time. Again, the preferred name for God in Job is Shaddai. And this name is almost exclusively the name used for God about the same time period as well. Well, if we're really going to understand this type of biblical literature together, we must understand how to read it. And this is where I'll close this morning. So as we commence our study, I would like for us to heed some suggestions regarding your reading of the book. Remember, this is wisdom literature, but it's full of various genres of writing. So be patient. Don't hurry. Some portions read very quickly and passionately and others the opposite. Some sections sound ridiculously repetitive, at nauseum, self-centered, but keep reading. Remember we just read about his friends for seven days, they sat down in seven nights and they didn't say a word to Job? You're gonna get through all that they say to Job and you're gonna stop, you're gonna grab your head, you're gonna say, just shut up. <laughs> just stop talking. Please go back to the memory of the original seven days when you first found Job and be quiet. I did that, I've done that, I did sorry just be be quiet (laughs) sometimes you just need peace in your life and dude you didn't even recognize him when you saw him right he's taking jars of clay and he's scraping infection out of his skin on his face you you'll see it in chapter two just be quiet and let the guy heal but be patient keep reading keep reading it's god's word Could you write these things down? Can we, I, I'm, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm telling you that doing this was very good for my soul in understanding this book, okay? So I'm just gonna encourage you to do this. You do with it what you want. But I think, boy, we're, Pastor Steve mentioned what well, we're praying together, right, as a flock. Uh, more and more, that's been a crazy good encouragement to me this week when I go to pray, to know that so many others are praying in, in unison and chorus about the same things. I've had, I've had more evangelistic opportunity in the last two and a half weeks. I tell you that I've had in the last two and a half years. Amen. And so many of you are experiencing the same thing. Pray. God's working. Pray. But if we could understand this book together in somewhat of a uni- unified way as well, I think it would be helpful for us as a flock. So here you go. You Ready? Sit down, please, if you think about it, and read the book in one sitting. If you're an avid reader, it's going to take you about two to two and a half hours. If you're not an avid reader, probably three to five hours. If you can't do it in one sitting, I would encourage one afternoon. If you can't do it in one afternoon, I would say a maximum of one day. Read the whole book at maximum within 24 hours. When I was a kid, I had a little box radio from the 60s in my bedroom, and there's only two things that I listened to. If the Cleveland Indians were on the West Coast, right, their games would never start until 9 or 10 p.m., and I had a bedtime. So I would tune in to back then, what I think was called 3WE 1100, and I would listen to the play-by-play, right, of that former Indians Hall of Famer call the Indians games in the West Coast. If they were on the East Coast or Central time, I would just listen to them on my transistor radio. For you young kids, don't worry about what that is. That's how how we used to hear the games. Or I would watch them on TV, which was kind of rare because we only got three channels back then, and that was only if we had tinfoil on our rabbit ears on our TV, and if we turn the rabbit ears a certain way at, towards the window where maybe clouds were breaking where we could actually pick up a non-fuzzy scream. I digress too much. But if I wasn't listening to Indians games, there was, and I think there still is, one of my favorite channels in the Cleveland area is, are the call letters still WCLV? It's the classical radio station in Cleveland. And I don't know what was wrong with me. I was a teenager, and I loved classical music. And I would turn that on, and I would just listen to it until I fell asleep. Often fell asleep very quickly. Right? But nonetheless, I enjoyed it. Went on to pick up an instrument, went on to do some singing in classical music, and I enjoyed it. If you you read the book of Job in sections days apart or even a couple days apart, I think you're going to miss the the whole nine-inning experience. You're going to miss the whole process of the reason why the movement of the music and the process of the movement of a symphony happens. It was written for a purpose. It was written for a time, and whether a game or whether a symphony, to be maybe understood at the same time underneath the same purpose. I would encourage you to read it out loud if you can. Read it out loud. This will certainly help you with the two thirds of the book, which include Job's friends and his responses to them and their extended explanations and circumstances. I would say this, read very sympathetically. Read very sympathetically. It doesn't matter who, what author you read about the background of this book, every one of these authors is going to encourage you to do these things. That's why I'm giving them to you. I took all of their suggestions, I did them myself as a rich blessing. Read very sympathetically. That's the reason why I started with the content of Job's character, and that's the why that we read about his friends and their compassionate hearts in, in chapter two, long before we get into the longer section of dialogues, which can be a little bit upsetting and confusing. Read sympathetically. Read seeing faith. Read experiencing them grow in their faith as they wrestled out various theological realities and practices and their understandings and practices in their life. Number four, try to read the whole book in this way in a different literal version that you consistently read in. Certainly no problem with the little translation of the Bible that you have, but sometimes we're used to seeing certain words or expressions that can get us stuck, so to speak, in a book that's easy to get stuck. And we have the tendency to get lazy in our Bible reading and read through, going through the motions, if you will. A different version that's literal, that says the same truth content using different words may help you comprehend and enjoy and understand the book a bit more. And as you're reading chapter by chapter and section by section, form general summaries of each. So if you look at my Bible, right, and you read, right, you'll see little notes here and there. But what you do is you find maybe a familiar phrase that's mentioned often in each person's response or response to a response and you underline it and you just kind of form some general conclusions as you go through. That's okay. It's okay if the general conclusion that you come to, you find out wasn't the right conclusion by the time you get to the end of the book. It's all part of the process. But read forming general summaries of each section. Okay. And I hope these suggestions help you and our way to understanding this piece of wisdom literature and what it has to teach us about our great God as we endure through suffering and difficulty. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for this simple journey, introductory journey into this wonderful book. We ask that you give us wisdom as we study it and preach it, apply it, and as we all study it and apply it and live it together. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen.